0: Study called Collision, a study through the Gospel of John, and uh, I'll try to move quickly today. It was, uh, my son Cole spoke way too long. First test, it was great. It was, those kids did a wonderful job. I'm uh, Getting nervous about my job. <laughs> two 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 preacher boys there. I like it. So good. Um, if you got your Bible we're in the Book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, and we're going verse by verse. This would be a good study for you to uh, listen online and catch up with online because. Um, we're literally going to go through the whole thing verse by verse. Uh, this, uh, before I get started in this, I just wanted—I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, beginning of June, my wife and I, and uh, we entered in a 20-mile, rough terrain hike up in Kettle Moraine Forest, called the uh, the uh, the Mammoth March. And a few nights, every week uh, in the spring, we went out hiking every night to prepare for it. 20 miles through Kettle Moraine—it's a little bit of a hike. It's a little bit of a thing. And and as we started the hike, and we did this, and we were so so excited, we finished it and made really good time on it. Actually, Um, we we noticed at the beginning of the hike, and any of those of you that have done a race or anything, you know, those who have prepared and those who have not prepared. (laughs) And uh, when the hike started, there's you know this whole mass of people, and they're getting ready, they're getting ready to hike and stuff. And there was this lady, uh, one lady in front of me, and well, she wasn't she wasn't really in shape, and. we started hiking. We started, you know, going, and and we literally got about 100 yards, maybe not, from like that side of the building to this side of the building, and I could hear her starting to swear, and she was saying, this is harder than I thought. (laughs) I'm like going, man, this was like 100 yards. That's how far you go in Costco from the parking lot to the front entrance. We have 20 miles through the Kettlebrain Forest to do, you know, and uh, I was like, oh boy, this is going to be an interesting day, And, and I immediately thought about this. It's, It's really easy to start something, isn't it? Everyone likes to start something, but it's not as easy to finish something. It's not as easy to complete something. Everyone loves to start something. We all have the best intentions, but but a lot of times we fizzle out. You know, we all start, beginning of the year, we start to exercise, we're gonna diet, you know, and I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Everyone likes to start those things. We all like to start. I'm gonna start a business. But if I had a nickel for everyone I know that started a business, you know, it's like, okay, start a business. You know, it lasts about a week or two or whatever, and, and uh, you buy exercise equipment, and then the exercise equipment ends up like being a hanger for you holding your clothes. Let me see a quick survey here. How many of you have exercise equipment in your basement that's collecting dust? To well, be honest. Okay. <laughs> all right. We should just have like a big garage sale here, and everyone just swap, and just, hey, I got some, because it wouldn't matter, because you're not going to use it anyways, but we have a tendency, we all do, to, to start something and... It happens a lot in marriages. Um, A lot of us start, get excited about a marriage. Um, It's harder to finish in a marriage. Um, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, and when I do a lot of premarital counseling, I ask about how the wedding plans are coming. Listen, I've never, I've never had anybody say to me about the wedding, I don't know, we're just winging it. No one has said that it's the exact opposite. When there's time for a wedding, everyone prepares, and you prepare, and you plan, and, and you know, the, 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 the flowers have got to match the invitations, the invitations have got to match the, the other flowers, and this has got to match the bridesmaids, and let me, uh, let's talk about the bridesmaids' dresses. Why do we have this thing in America? We buy the ugliest bridesmaid dresses. They will never wear them again. They're just terrible, and it's like the women are all going, oh, I can't believe they're going to buy this, you know, and, but, but it, it matched, right? And that's what's really important. And we put so much time, so much money, so much thing into preparing something like a wedding, but are we prepared to finish it? Are we prepared to finish strong and to and to keep going? Average American right now spends about, and this is I think this is a low, a low number, the average cost of a wedding right now is forty one thousand dollars. And I I, sometimes I think that's low because sometimes because I know what those venues cost. Um, The average, so you know what that comes out to. The average cost per person that attends a wedding. I looked this up. Like, what's the average size of a wedding in America? The average cost per person is about two hundred and fifty-six dollars. So you have Uncle Billy coming to your wedding. You don't even like him. It's costing you $256 for Uncle Billy to come to your your wedding. I don't know, kind of a weird thing we do. Um, I always laugh because the wedding couples will spend all this money in a wedding, you know, doing this. And, you know, their Toyota Corolla out in the parking lot is rusting. And if they tie the cans with the string onto the back, it'll probably pull the bumper off the car. But my wedding matched, right? I mean, it was beautiful. It was stunning. You know, we don't have a car. We don't have a house or anything else. But boy, we have a wonderful wedding. Um, let me just throw this out. Uh, I know we have a lot of weddings coming up in our church. Um, but this is in the Gospel of John, so we're talking about it. Uh, my wife and I spent $1,000 on our wedding, and that included that included the reception. That included the reception. And you know what? We're just as married as anybody else in the room. Amen. <laughs> but I do know this. I do know that in 35 years of, of uh, pastoral counseling, I know this, I, it, and now this isn't the Bible, okay, it's not the Bible. It seems to me that the people that spend the most money on the wedding, their, their marriage actually lasts the least amount of time. It's the ones that are scraping two neck, nickels together and do some cheap little wedding. It just seems to me that, it seems, it's not the Bible, it just seems that their wedding or their marriage actually lasts a little bit longer. But again, that's just kind of the way it is, I don't know. But, um, but I, know, I just know in, in our day, day and time, it just it's really exciting to be Preparing for a marriage, preparing for a wedding. And, 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 and so what we're going to talk about tonight, or today, we're going to talk about three ingredients. Three ingredients f- to help you finish strong in your marriage. Okay, Three ingredients to help you finish strong in your marriage. Because the story that we're talking about is actually about a wedding. Um, and I know some of you are sitting here saying, Pastor Dan, I'm single. I'm not going to say raise your hands if you're single, but if you're single. Let me, let me encourage you with this. Statistically, in the United States of America... 94% of people end up getting married. So if this doesn't help you today, uh, there's a good chance you're going to need this anyways because 94% of you are going to get married. So uh, maybe you're married to you say, boy, my marriage is just wonderful and my marriage is great. I don't need help. Okay, possibly. Um, let's just kind of look at this as like the 5,000-mile oil change, just a little checkup here, just kind of some things to think about, you know, and, and uh, not make a big deal. And maybe some of you are saying, well, my, my, my marriage is terrible and it's awful, and I know there's that too, um, then, then maybe something here will be help, okay? Maybe there's just some little nugget that you'll get today and say, you know what, okay, this may be a little bit of a help. So no matter where you're at, this study today, I think, is going to be a benefit for all of us, myself included, because, because no one has it perfect, right? We want to work through things, and we want our wedding and our marriage to last forever, so John chapter 2, let's go. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we're going to have to move quickly today. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So, so verse 2, guess who, guess who shows up at the, at the marriage, at the wedding? Jesus shows up. The topic of our series is, is when God collides, a collision, and we've been talking about how God collides with our identity, God collides with all of humanity, and here God is colliding with a marriage, Jesus is literally showing up at a wedding, and So, first thing I want you to write down your sheets here. I have put some study sheets there for you today. I need God's presence in my marriage. I need God's presence in my marriage. Interesting to note, we look at this verse, this wedding, what day did the wedding take place? Well, it says the third day, so it must have been a Tuesday. Interesting note, a little bit of trivia. Most weddings today in Israel happen on Tuesday, the third day. Does anyone know why? It's a true statement. Why? Because in the account of creation in the book of Genesis... Interesting to note, on the third day, God said two times that it was good. All the other verses, all the other days, he said one time it was good, but on the third day, he said two times. So, so Jewish people take that and say, well, listen, I got married on a Tuesday because Tuesday, God was twice as happy, and it's just an extra blessing for my marriage. So you say, well, that's a little bit of trivia I'll never use. Well, that's true, it is, but um, it's kind of an interesting thing. So I know a lot of people like to get married in a church, there's really no... Precedent in the Bible that says you have to get married in a church. We, we do it. Um, it's unfortunate, though, that a lot of people don't be involved in church in their whole life until it comes time for their wedding. A lot of people don't get dressed up until it's their wedding, right? We don't take things seriously until it's their wedding. Statistically, people that go to church together, that read their Bible together, that, that pray together, um, statistically, the number of divorces and separations drops crazy. Like 50% of marriages end up in divorce. Those people that go to church and pray and read the Bible together, it's like one in a thousand that end up in a divorce. I mean, it's a huge thing. It's a big difference that it makes. I just think we, we can never discount the fact of having God's presence in our marriage and, and making sure that God is part of it. And so here we have Jesus, his disciples are invited to the wedding, and, and I believe that God needs to be part of it. I think it's good to have a wedding at church. I believe it's a problem when we become very selfish in our marriage. Um, our, our selfish nature, our sin nature. Selfishness, write this down. Selfishness is the kryptonite for a healthy, godly marriage. Selfishness is. It, it's, it's about being me. It's about me taking care of me. That's why we need God to be part of our marriage. We need, it takes three to make a godly marriage. God, the man, and the woman. And we take God out of the picture when it becomes about me. Selfishness just ruins marriages. Romans chapter 7, verse 18 says, For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, that's me, dwells no good thing. So if you want a marriage that's going to last, I encourage you just to really be honest and evaluate selfishness. You're selfish in some areas. Now, I do a lot of wedding, uh, a lot of marriage counseling, um, and I've said this before. I've yet to have a couple, I've yet to have a couple, had a, couple a married couple come into my office for, for marriage counseling, and I've yet to have a couple have a marriage problem. They don't have a marriage problem. You know what the couples have? They have a single problem, a singleness problem. This is, these are the problems I brought over for my singleness. It's me problems. It's what I do. It's me. It, it's the selfishness. And, and the only way for selfishness not to run rampant in a marriage is for both a husband and a wife to rely on God, to be filled with God's spirit. You know, Paul talks about marriage a lot in the book of Ephesians, and, and he says, you know, be filled with God's spirit. You be careful with what you say. Be cautious about how you talk. Married couples, listen... Husbands, wives, your words have a lot of weight to them. Do you remember when you were a child growing up, your mom and dad's words have a lot of weight? So the neighbor down the street said, you know, whatever, get off my lawn. And you're like, oh, whatever, it's the old lady down the street, doesn't matter. But if it's your mom, if it's your dad, you know how that that carried a lot of weight? Because it's your mom and it's your dad. Well, that same weight is carried by a spouse, by a husband or a wife when they're married. You be careful how you talk. Your, Your words weigh so much more. And sometimes I hear couples, Christian couples, just talk, and the way they talk to each other, the tone they talk. Be very careful. It carries a lot of weight. You say something, you know, that, 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 that the neighbor could say to your husband, it doesn't mean anything, but you say it, it means an awful lot. When I preach a message, I'll, there's always someone that will say something about my message. I, I don't care. You know, pastor, that wasn't a really good message. I could care less. <laughs> doesn't, I just go on, my life goes on, right? It doesn't matter. I get home, and my wife says, well, that one really stunk. Okay, that carries a lot more weight. Oh, it's like, really? <laughs> now, she doesn't do that too much. But sometimes, but she's the one I listen to. But, but boy, our words, they can blow a marriage apart. They can keep a marriage together. So you be very cautious about that. Let's keep going. Verse 3, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he said unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. and When men shall well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and the disciples believed on him." We've got to pause for a minute, and we've got to develop a little bit of culture, a little bit of understanding of the story. Uh, because if you understand the story, it makes a whole lot more sense. Um, write this down, too, for the sake of time. Number two, I need God's precepts in my marriage. Here's the deal about this story. John chapter uh, 2 is not a story about wine. We have it would happen a lot of times. I'll be talking about what the Bible talks about wine, and people raise their hand. But, Pastor! You know, didn't you, don't you know Jesus turned water into wine? And it's like, no, I never knew that. You know, thank you for sharing that new news with me. Uh, but it's really easy. We want to kind of go to that. It's a first glance. We say, hey, look at that. They're running out of drinks. Uh, it's inconvenient. But the story is not about the wine. The story is about the miracle. The story is about the marriage. Um, now, let's, let's, let's think about the wedding feast for a second because I want you to understand this culturally. These feasts usually took about a week so imagine you don't have cars, you know, people come in on their, their horseback or their donkeys from all different towns and they stay with you for a week. So this is a wedding, it's an engagement party, it's a bachelor party, it's a, it's a reception, it's everything all at once in one long thing. And you don't have the convenience. Now you have to get this in your mind. You don't have the convenience of running a quick trip or Costco. You have a week's worth of people, family over, they're in town. You don't have a water faucet, you have a well in town right? So it's not like you can just go to the refrigerator and get a Pepsi. This is like a pretty big deal. Like, like this is a really big thing if you run out of drinks for everybody. Just flat out period. If you run out of anything for anybody, it's not like, well, let's run to Costco and buy some more chips. You just didn't do that. It's like a really big thing. It's an embarrassing thing. It's, it's a major deal. Uh, uh, it was a socially big thing because everyone in town knew about it. And, and, you know, the other day I was at the lake with a bunch of teenagers. I love, my wife and I like to mentor with the teenagers, and we take them out in the lake. And we were out in the lake, and I put my mother-in-law in charge of preparing the food for the teens. And she did her good job. I love my mother-in-law. But she hasn't been around kids as much as I have. And I kind of know. I can see a table full of food, and I know. Just for my 35 years in the ministry, I kind of just know. Is this enough food or not? I just know it. Well, she brought a bottle of apple juice, for a whole bunch of hungry teenagers at the lake on a hot day. And I got there, and I'm like, Is this all we have? <laughs> and she says, and I love my mother in law, but she just, you know, she's not around teenagers. And she says, Oh, yeah, that'll be plenty. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. The moment I just said, Oh, okay, one of the teens, this is not a joke, one of the teenagers walked over to the apple juice with a big smile on their face, grabbed the bottle of the apple juice, took the lid off, <laughs> drank the whole thing, gone. Uh, Oh right. That's nice. Now we have nothing. (laughs) Dumb kid. You know (laughs) what? But what do you do? It's not like, okay, we're out here in the lake, we're gonna be, you know, having a cookout, you know, what are you gonna do? But 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 so it's a big deal. So anyways, back to our story here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she comes to Jesus and says, Listen, they don't have any wine. And Jesus, his response looks a little bit cold. He says, Woman. You know what? What what does this concern have to do with you or to me? My time has not yet come for a miracle. It sounds a little rude, but the word "woman" is actually the word "gune." It's actually a word of endearment. It's a word of respect. It's like saying "ma'am" or "dear mother." Gune, not Guni, but Gune. So it was a very respectful word he said to her. You know, like you know, mom. My time is not here to reveal myself. My time is not now to do miracles you know, this isn't it. And then I think it's interesting, you look at their passage there, and, and she goes and she tells the rest of the people, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. <laughs> I just have to think this is really kind of a humorous thing. Here's Jesus, you know, he's probably about 30 years old, he's with his mom, his mom's a widow, and you know, they're Jewish, right? And, and, and she, I could see her coming up to Jesus, Jesus, they're out of drinks, you know, there's nothing else to drink here at the wedding, you know, what are you going to do about it? And Jesus, you know, calm, cool, and collected, He's having a good time at the wedding. You know, don't, don't ever think Jesus was some stick in the mud. I think Jesus liked to have fun. You know, we look at the stories. He, he likes to do stuff, right? Likes to, he likes to be around people. The Bible calls him a friend of sinners, not the boring person on the block. He was a nice person. He was kind. He liked to be with people. And he's probably having a good time at the wedding. And Jesus, they're out of drinks. You know, there's nothing else to drink. And he just kind of says, you know, dear mother, it's not my time to start doing miracles. I'm not ready yet especially guys think time out where are they they're in cana the town is about this big those of you going to israel with me we're going to go through cana and we're going to drive past it and you're going to say that was it <laughs> and it was literally it was that was that, that quick that if you're going to do a miracle and get things going where do you do a miracle in jerusalem in front of who all the priests <sighs> my time has not yet come mom like give me some space mom give me a little bit of room and then what is what does mary do now just look at the story Imagine this Jewish mother. All of you, do whatever he says. I'm going back to the party. You know, (laughs) it's like Jesus is probably going, do whatever he says. Like, I guess I'm doing something. I mean, I wasn't planning on doing something, but okay, mom, fine. So, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of think kind of interesting conjecture. So, so Jesus tells him, he says, let's take these, these, these giant stone water pots. Here's a picture uh, those of you going with me to Israel, you'll see these pots, what they look like. Um, total, this was probably about 120, they're saying, you know, 120 and 180 gallons of water is what you could have put in six pots. So 120 to 180 gallons. So we're not talking he made a two-liter bottle. We're talking a lot. And uh, 100, let's just put it in the middle and say 150. You know, this is a big deal. Now, we have to have this conversation because we have to understand the story. And I want you to get this. And I don't want this to be offensive to anybody, but we're a Bible church. Can I get an amen? Okay, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about this. We're not going to, well, my old pastor, I don't care what your old pastor said. Well, my mother, I could give a rip what your mother said. I just don't care. Well, I read a book. I could care less what the book says. Well, I heard a pastor on the radio. Big deal. We're going to look at what the Bible says about this wine. So. Don't get offended about it, but let's just be honest. Can we be honest today? And let's just see what the Bible says about this. So whenever I, whenever, again, whenever I'm talking about alcohol, um, you know, people always feverishly turn, John chapter 2, okay. Um, we have to look at what the meaning of the word wine is. If we're going to understand this, understand culturally, we have to get this. And here's the trick. The trick of understanding the story and understanding this is the context and the words. So, we live in a day and age where, where, I'll just be honest, church, a lot of people are just too lazy to really study things on their own. People say, Well, I heard some guy, yeah, but have you ever studied it? You know, I spent a lot of time in college talking about or studying about whether the wine that Jesus turned in in John chapter 2 was alcoholic or not alcoholic wine. I was just, I, I spent, I, I exhaustively studied it. I mean, there's nothing else to study in the subject because I was looking for a loophole when I was in college because our attitude is, is the assumption that the Hebrew and the Greek words for wine so the Hebrew yein and the Greek word oinos always mean fermented wine this is our assumption we always assume when we see the word wine in the Bible that it's alcoholic we just assume that Hey, pastor why do we assume that I'll tell you why we assume it here in Wisconsin because Wisconsin is the drunkest state in all 50 states the top 8 drunkest cities in the United States of America are in Wisconsin. Did you know that? The top eight. Other states, other places, you know, it's not a big deal. But here in Wisconsin, our assumption is: well, it's the word wine. You know, it just we assume it's alcoholic wine. We just do that. But but why do we assume that? The the, the words here that are used, Hebrew word yayin and the Greek word oinos, it's it's really clear on these. Historically, historically not just in the bible but in history these words have always referred to this the juice of the grape whether it's fermented or non-fermented it's, it's kind of like us saying soda or pop soda doesn't mean pepsi but it also doesn't mean mountain dew it's just soda it's pop how many of you like to say the word soda how many of you say pop How many of you say Pepsi? Just give me a Pepsi is like the generic word. Just give me a Pepsi. No one's, okay, that's more the South. Okay, so it's a generic word. That's all it is. It's a generic word. It's just like saying, give me a soda. Give me a pop. It could be fermented, absolutely. But it also could not be, uh, uh, could be unfermented. The New Webster uh, Encyclopedia Dictionary of the English Language defines the word wine as, from this time period, wine or juice pressed from the grapes But not fermented. So that's what the New Webster's Encyclopedia Dictionary says. The Jewish Encyclopedia explains that fresh wine before fermenting was called yayin. Okay? A generic word for grape juice. And again, when we think grape juice, we think Welch's. No. Been to Israel 14 times. And on Shabbat, which is on Friday, we have a Shabbat dinner. We'll have it on this trip, a Friday night dinner. The hotel will ask us. For your wine tonight, sir, do you want fermented or unfermented it 's just called wine it 's not Welch's, it 's wine, but is it for, is it alcoholic or is it not and and it 's the same word still used there today it 's a generic word it 's like what kind of soda do you want so so even in the earliest Jewish companion of the Talmud with the Talmud is is the book that they get all their religious uh, J- religious and Jewish culture from Uh, It says, one may press out a cluster of grapes, so you can press grapes, since the juice of the grape, there it is, is considered wine. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but there's always an assumption that the good wine that Jesus made at, at Cana was good because it was high in alcohol content. We just assume that. We just assume because we're Americans. Well, there's two major assumptions here. The first, it's assumed that the description given by the master of the banquet uh, by that, of the wine provided by Christ as the good wine means a high-quality alcoholic wine. We assume that. Second, it's assumed that the expression, quote, well drunk, used by the master of the, uh, the banquet, indicates that the guests were intoxicated. Consequently, we assume the wine Jesus made must also have been fermented. So let's, let's spend a minute here, because we have to get this. Uh, let's talk about the first assumption, that the good wine, the quote, the good wine in the verse, you see it there, the good wine, Uh, that Jesus provided was pronounced good by the master because it was high in alcoholic content. Okay, again, this is based on 20th century thinking, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, this is 2,000 years ago. This is not modern-day America. This is a big deal. This is a totally different culture It's based on our taste buds today. It's based on on what we see in the news today. But it's not true. In the Roman world, in the New Testament times, it wasn't true. The best wines were those that the the alcoholic uh, potency had been removed by filtration, by boiling. The Talmud, again, which was the central text of rabbinical Judaism and the primary source of Jewish religious law and Jewish theology indicates that drinking to the accompaniment of musical instruments and festive occasions such as weddings is actually forbidden now just think about that just for a moment think who's at the wedding? Jesus did Jesus fulfill all points of the law? I'm not saying I'm just saying you think about that for a moment the Talmud said you can't do that you, can't, you, you couldn't do it so the assumption that the good wine must be fermented is nowhere supported in any Jewish theology it's, just not, it's not supported you look it up don't say, well, I read a book or pastor so-and-so or the guy in the race. Don't do that. You look at your Bible. This is our textbook for life, church. Amen? Okay. Well, but the, the hip church down the street, I could care less with a hip church down the street. I just don't, I don't give a rip. The second assumption is that the people were, quote, well drunk. Well, that means that all the guests were intoxicated and that the good wine that Christ gave must have been intoxicating. Again, that's a huge assumption. It's a huge assumption from people that have never studied this culturally. Look at verse 10, and he said unto them, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. The comment here that is in question was not made. The the guy who says this in the story is not talking about the people here at the party. He's talking about the industry. He's talking about the culture. The people that host weddings, the caterers, This is what they normally do. He's not talking about the people in front of them, how how the sentence is structured, how it's phrased. He's not talking about them. It's talking about people in the trade. This is the trade standard. If you're a caterer, if you host parties, this is what you do. It's not the state of the people that are intoxicated there. And another important consideration is the fact that the Greek verb translated well drunk actually means to drink freely. It has no implication of intoxication. So it's a lot different if you look at it that way. The people drink freely. They, the, the kids, the teenagers at our, at our lake party there at night, one kid comes up and he drinks freely. Don't assume that that teenager was drinking alcohol. He wasn't. It was apple juice. I was there, I saw it, I saw the bottle. But I say he drank freely. He just, he knocked the whole thing down. There was no limitations, we weren't saying hold back. He just drank the whole thing apple juice. So, but, but most importantly, uh, we have to look at this too. Think of the moral implications. Read this, I'm going to read this quote here. Those who wish to insist that the wine used at the feast was alcoholic and that Jesus also provided alcoholic wine, although with better quality, are driven to the conclusion that Jesus provided a large additional quantity of intoxicating wine in order that the wedding party could continue It's reckless indulgence. Such a conclusion destroys a moral integrity of Christ's character. Moral consistency demands that Christ could not have miraculously produced between 120 and 180 gallons of intoxicating wine for the use of the men, the women, and the children gathered to the wedding feast without becoming morally responsible for that intoxication. If we put all the grammar, all the Greek, all the Hebrew aside, and you just look at the moral implications. So what you're telling me is that Jesus produced 180 gallons of fermented alcoholic wine for the party that, if you look at it the other way, that for a party that was already well drunk. They are all drunk. Let me make 180 more gallons. Where does that even fit into anyone's argument of moderation? Where, where does that fit into anything that Jesus has ever done? Has Jesus ever helped people ruin their life? Think about this. Has Jesus ever produced anything that was rotten or decayed? Book, beginning of the book of John says that Jesus created everything, right? He was, Genesis chapter 1, read it. It was good, it was good, it was good. Oh, this was rotten and decayed. Jesus doesn't produce rotten and decayed church. That's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't help drunk people get wasted. Where does that fit in the moral character of Jesus? I mean, if you just stop and look at that, you have to pause and say, wait a second. Moral consistency, anything with Scripture, requires that the good wine produced by Christ was fresh, unfermented grape juice. Interesting, I'll, I'll be done with this. Interesting, look at the word good, good wine. The adjective there is actually the Greek word kalos, kalos. That's the word that John wrote, kalos. The word kalos literally means morally excellent, morally excellent. When John wrote this, he said, Jesus made morally excellent wine. Now think, he could have used the word gathos, which is an adjective that just means good. Okay, it's just good. Why didn't he just say good wine? Because it wasn't just good wine, he made a very specific point to say it's morally excellent. Jesus could not have done anything that was immoral. He couldn't have. He couldn't have done it. There's no way the Bible talks about Jesus not breaking any parts of the law. He would have been breaking the Talmud had he been feasting and and, and parting with alcohol. He couldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. The people, you know what the disciples would have done? boom, you're a phony. They would have got up and they would have left him right then and there. But they didn't. They didn't. They celebrated it with him. Why? Because he didn't break any part of the law. He didn't do that. So you can read a lot more about that. I encourage you to get some good books on it. Um, The the story here, though, is about the marriage. (laughs) But I figured if I didn't talk about what the wine was, you'd all be sitting there going, but what about the wine? Because everyone always wants to ask about that. So it's not about the alcohol. It's, It's not about the wine. The big picture is this. There is nothing ins- insignificant in your, in your need or in your life that God doesn't see and that doesn't already concern God, okay? God cares about you, church. And we could talk a lot about this, but, but, but God delights in you. Church, don't forget, th- this is such an insignificant thing. They're in a small, nothing town. We don't even know who the people in the wedding are. We don't know their names, but it was a big enough deal that mom came to Jesus and said, Jesus, they're embarrassed. It's bad. We have a whole bunch of family here. This is awkward. There's nothing to drink. We can't go turn on the spigot. We can't go to Quick Trip. We can't go to Costco. What do we do? And Jesus', Jesus attitude literally as well, it's obviously important to these people. Put my things aside. Put what my plan is aside. It's important to them. I'm going to make it important to me. Okay? Church, let me say this. Wherever you're at in your, your marriage... Some of you are struggling. I get it. I know it. Some of you are hoping to get married. Some of you are just getting married, wherever you're at. Don't forget, if, if it's important to you, it's important to God. But pastor, I got this little problem. It's nothing. Have you brought it to God in prayer? Have you spent time praying? It's interesting. We think about what these, what these servants did. Think about the servants real quick. The servants did what? They believed that, that Jesus could do it, and then they did what? They obeyed. They obeyed. They got it, and they obeyed. Listen, church, spend time reading. Spend time in your Bible. Spend time being in church. If you're struggling, the number one place you need to be is in your church. You get in your church. You need to be in this book more, not less. You need to be spending time praying more, not less. And you need to be taking it to God and saying, God, this seems so silly. This seems so dumb. It's a health problem. It's a financial problem. It's a job problem. It's a marriage problem. It's a school problem. It's whatever problem is. God, I'm bringing it to you first. I believe that you can fix the problem because it's important to me it must be important to you I believe you can do it and then I'm gonna obey I'm just gonna serve oh God what is it you need me to fill these up with water I'll be there and I'll do it and I'll fill this up with water and I'll spend all this time doing this I believe you can do it I'm not gonna sit on my backside I'm gonna obey I'm gonna get involved and I'm gonna serve Okay, and let God work through this listen I, I believe Christian marriages can make it why? because we have the Holy Spirit, number one, living within us, and Christians, we have God's answers to all of our problems. I, I, I just really believe that. I believe a Christian can make it because we've got this book and we've got the Holy Spirit. Believe it and obey it, okay? All right, uh, for the sake of time, we're gonna stop our lesson right here. We'll pick up on it next time we're together. Don't worry, we'll keep going on this study. But let me just end with this because this is the most important. We talk about it every week, but it's important. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, what does this say, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? He paid your sin debt. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't make you go, go to church. He didn't make you get baptized. He didn't make you start doing good things. No. He said, whosoever believes in me. If you believe that I died on the cross, buried three days later, rose again, my debt paid your sin debt you know what? God says you have right now eternal life. If you believe I am the Messiah, you're trusting in me, you've accepted that. God, I believe you paid the mortgage. I don't have to. You died on the cross. You, you rose again to pay it. I don't have to. God says you are forever part of my family. You have been born again. If you've never done that, I trust encourage you to do that today. Alright? Let's close with a word of prayer. We'll be done this morning. Father, thank you for our study today about the marriage. Lord, we, we had to cover some things about the wine to be clear. I pray if anyone struggles with that and understanding it, they, they'd read some good books about it. We got some on our resource table. I want them to read about it. I want them to have a biblical answer for what they do. But Lord, most importantly, the lesson we learned today, if it's important to me, it's important to you. Father, some people here today have got some issues that are important to them. Would you hear their prayers would you encourage them? Would you bring them mercy? Would you bring them, bring them uh, a challenge? Would you bring someone alongside them to encourage them to do the right thing or to start doing this or stop doing this? Would you help those people struggling in their marriage? Father, Christians need to have strong marriages. The world needs to see a difference. Would you help all of us and some people are just struggling? Or would you, would you just work in our lives? We want to be a testimony for the world in all that we do including our marriage. Be with our Lord, as we have this study. We continue on this in the next week. In your name we pray. Amen. We are very interested in you and your spiritual growth. If you want to contact Dayspring for prayer or more information, you can reach us at 262 or on the web at dayspringbaptist.com. Thanks for listening.